Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Sonia Lewis. She is an anti-racism impact strategist, and she can be seen on the front lines of many social justice movements. So I'm excited to hear from her today and learn more about her story. So Sonia, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thank you so much, Sarah. I appreciate you for, you know, taking the courage and, and stepping out into a world of podcasting and and, and the platform and your listeners. I am Sonia Lewis. I am a native of California and I, I consider myself an, a, an old chick in the sense that I've been around for a little bit. Um, the mother of six beautiful boys, um, the wife of a long time. Sometimes I, I forget the number of years because they just all mesh together. Um, I am a former high school teacher, taught history for nearly um, 20 years. And then I ventured into the world of business and became an anti-racism impact strategist. And basically, um, that is equity work. That is um, a lot of folks lump me into the world of DEI, which is diversity, edu- um, um, equity, and inclusion work. Um, but I feel like we do a deeper dive into um, shaping and, and realigning culture and climate within organizations I am not a transactional DEI worker in the sense of I come and facilitate a session. We're one and done and we give out certificates and everything's kumbaya. And, you know, you go about your business and say, oh, well, we did training on diversity. Um, My organization helps teams really dig deep and understand where they're lacking equity. And so that's just a little bit about me. And so can you talk about why you decided to make this switch after a 20-year career in teaching? Very interesting, Sarah, that tw- 10 years ago, thir- 13 years ago, actually, um, I unfortunately became a whistleblower. And I discovered I was running a small um, community, education community, um, at one of my local high schools here. And Every year I was responsible for tallying the books, the the money, you know, um, I was responsible for spending the money and, and keeping track of where the money was spent. And so this particular year I was doing just that. And I discovered that there was about fifteen to $17,000 missing. And for me, I mean, the, the grant per year was 87,000. So that's a significant chunk. It wasn't like, you know, a couple of hundred dollars that I was like, oh my gosh, I don't, did we spend this on food for the kids? Did we spend this on transportation? Did I miss a gas voucher? 17,000 potential dollars was unaccounted for. And so I'm, I'm doing my tally and, and I, I handed over to my assistant. I said, hey, you crunch the numbers and tell me um, what you get. And she came back and, and her numbers were about 15,000 off. And I was like, something's wrong. So I go to my principal and I say, Hey, um, there's a problem. And, you know, the state of California is, is very serious about, you know, these grants and, and how the money's tally up. Um, can you offer some assistance? And he says, yeah, um, just leave the paperwork here and I'll get to it. And I'm like, I'm in a panic because I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is my job. And all of the training that I had gone through with the California, um, small programs was, 
you as the lead teacher and the program coordinator, you know, these funds, you know, they lie at your steps and you have to sign on the dotted line. And I, I'm a literal kind of girl. So, you know, when they're like sign on the line, that's like a contract. That's like your name and your integrity is in jeopardy. And he was very cavalier about the whole situation. And so I said, okay, when can I check back with you? Mind you, I always schedule a week to do this, you know, planning and this this tallying for myself. So I have a scheduled substitute in my class. And I'm just like, he's so cavalier, like, what's going on? So he says, give me a couple of days and I'll get back to you. Okay. A day goes by and I call the secretary. Hey, can you check and see if, you know, I won't say his name. He's not important, but um, can you check and see if he's gotten to my grant, you know, information? She says, well, I'll give you a call back. I'll ask him and I'll give you a call back. She never calls back either. So he said a couple of days to me last like, okay, two days is going to come and gone. And what are we doing here? So the third day I go into the office and he's like, um, I said, I'll get back to you in a couple of days. Like just, it's okay. So I'm like, okay. Almost a week goes by. I'm panicking by this time. This is like, I start this process on a Monday. This is now Thursday. I go back and he says, well, um, just go ahead and sign the documentation. I know where the money was spent. And I said, well, if you know where the money was spent, you sign on the line. And I've always been a very like, if I don't get direct answers, I can't, you know, we, we can't, there, there has to be open communication. And so, um, he says, when is the grant due? When is the paperwork due? I said, next Wednesday. He says, okay, no problem. He says, let's have a conversation on Monday. Monday comes and he's not, I come into the office. He's not there. What am I going to do? So I call my representative at the grant, who's my, you know, if there's anything going wrong with the software, if there's anything going wrong with the program, this is my liaison to this, to the state. So I give a call over. I say, you know, I'm getting the runaround from my administrator. I really don't know what to do, but the documentation is due by Wednesday. Is there any way that I can get an extension? Cause he's not in today. And she says, I can give you until Friday. No problem. I didn't tell him that I had until Friday. I went back on Tuesday and I said, Hey, you know, this is due tomorrow. What are we doing? He still wasn't in. And his secretary said he would be in later that afternoon. I go and I, I'm like, I feel like I'm stalking this guy. So he says, you know, Sonia, we spent this money on um, a couple of digital printers, um, 3D, one 3D printer and a digital printer um, for the another program on campus. And this program on campus, so mind you, my program was for marginalized students. It was specifically for um, students who weren't doing well um, and to get them engaged in a career path. And so he spent it on a program that is one, highly funded, and two, doesn't have a lot of students that are, you know, disenfranchised. And maybe cross, maybe two of my students were also in that program. And that's the way that he justified it. And I said, well, according to the paperwork, according to the program, um, the, if there's a crossing of programs for my students, I can help spend money in that program, but it needs to be like a 15 to 20% number of my students involved in that program. Two students do, don't qualify for 15%. And so I said, you go ahead and sign the paperwork. And I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm glad that I now know where the money was spent. I said, but that's not the way that this is supposed to work. Long story short, Sarah, I refused to sign the paperwork. A week later, he tells me that I'm not welcome back um, on his campus next school year. 
um, and that because he can't fire me, the district will have to reassign me to another school site. And I fought it. And I every assignment that they attempted to assign me, I declined. They had to pay me for um, being off that school year because I refused to sign on for a contract somewhere else. Um, I then went out on disability because I was very depressed and having severe anxiety behind it. Um, and then we had to go into litigation because after a year of them having to pay me, they were like, what are we doing here? And I'm like, I don't know. What are we doing here? I like to go back to my job that I built this beautiful program for. My students would like me to come back. My parents would like me to come back. So then I organized a um, somewhat of a protest because that's just my, the nature of who I am. Um, and I had my students and my parents and community members come out to a school board meeting um, and stand in solidarity for me getting my, my position back. And I would say that that school board meeting was filled with about 100 people and they still didn't listen to me. And at long story short, again, they had to pay me a severance package of three years, um, my full salary, and they wanted me to go away quietly. I wouldn't sign those papers again to go away quietly at every opportunity that I got still to this day. I tell people that, you know, sometimes our school districts, they finagle, you know, funds. They they don't do the right thing um, to take care of students. And, and most importantly, those students who are struggling to make it through the system. So I became this whistleblower. Um, I don't regret not signing that paperwork. I don't regret the experience of going through my mental health challenges that I went through during that time period. Um, and I just don't regret standing my my ground in that moment. So it was a challenge, but we made it through and we've been now in business as a consultant for 13 years. So it was a huge lesson and a huge windfall on the other side for me. Yeah. And I was going to ask, like, did you regret doing any of that? And so it sounds like, you know, it was the right decision. So then what was it like switching paths and saying, well, I'm not going to go back to teaching and I'm going to try this, this other thing. Yeah. I'm a very, if I say I'm going to do this, I'm doing this. So the way that I told myself that I wouldn't go back into teaching is I didn't want to have a crutch to fall back on. I let my credential expire. And you have to have a teaching credential in the state of California to teach. And so I let it expire intentionally because I knew that if I renewed it, I would probably go back and sub and then lead, subbing would lead to go back in and, and this would, you know, draw the kids would draw me back in and I would take a position. And if I let it expire, that meant that I would have to go back to college and take two classes Whereas if I just renewed it, all I had to do was pay some money to renew it. Um, but when you let it expire, you have to go back in and almost not completely recertify, but you have to take some classes. And so I was like, I'm, the likelihood of me taking some additional classes when I are, yeah, I'm not going to do that. So um, my family was quite, quite miffed at me that I let my credential expire. But here's the cool thing. I was getting phone calls from parents and students asking me to do very similar things that I was doing as a teacher. And so after about eight months of really, really going through that depression, um, a friend of mine who was a former colleague, she called me up one day and she's like, I want to take you to breakfast for your birthday. Let's figure out what your next career path is. And so in 2009, on my birthday, we sat in a restaurant booth and we wrote out 
everything we needed for my business. And that was the birth of, and she, she literally asked me, what are you doing? Um, I'm getting word that parents are not getting you on the phone or that they're calling you, asking you to do this. What, what are you doing? And that really was a kick in the butt to like get up and do something. And so knowing that I had the support of parents and students and teachers, right. Um, and some, some administrators who were like, this is someone we can rely on. She is an expert in creating curriculum and developing program. Let's have her come in and do some things. And so it was an easy transition because facilitating and doing trainings and things of that nature is just like teaching. And so I do that naturally. And it was just easy to move over, come up with a business design and, and do the same work under the auspice of consulting. So it was, it was a fun transition. Then talk a little bit about consulting and what is it that you do when you're consulting with people? Yeah. So when I originally started out, we were creating um, programs to help high school students transition from high school to the real world, whether that was college um, acceptance and scholarships um, or um, being ready for work, um, creating resumes, understanding what it takes to interview well. Um, That's how we started off. Then I'd have um, teachers and administrators call me in and say, hey, Sonia, can you come in and do some mentoring programs? Yes, absolutely. I can design a program. Um, I can remember for a few years, I was being asked for by several schools to um, do a um, girls mentoring program where students who were um, struggling, they needed a mentor. We, I would meet with them. I would literally, my program would buy them lunch once a week. They would meet with me. We would review, um, you know, their grades and and the things that they like to do and like just give them support. Um, Did that for a few years. And then the world changed in the sense of lots of schools were struggling with their climate and culture. Now, granted, I never at that time, I wasn't I couldn't go. I couldn't lead with I want to come in. I'm an anti-racism impact strategist. Right. I couldn't lead with, you know, you all have this equity thing all screwed up. I would lead with, you know, let's evaluate what your climate and culture looks like at your school and see if there's some adjustments that we can make. Let me be the eyes on the outside and then, you know, come in and give you some review of the things that I see. And so then we did that for a few years. And then George Floyd happened. And now folks are like clamoring at, can you come back cunt, and do this? And now it's like after several years of building my integrity and building the the foundation of the work, it's always been there that we're doing equity work and it's around anti-racism, right? Um, now we lead with that and, and, and organizations appreciate that we lead with that. I would say that probably 60 to 70% of my clients are in the education arena. So school districts, um, colleges and universities. Um, But now I'm getting a lot of corporate organizations. I'm getting nonprofits who really want to take that time. And, and, and mind you, my contracts with these organizations last from a year to five years. So these are like commitments I look at their mission and vision statement. I look at who are the people that you're serving. I look at what is the demographic of your employees. When we're talking from top to bottom, what does that look like? And I approach it from the standpoint of 13%. Here in the U.S., the population of Black folks in this country is about 13%. If I can help an organization get to that number and look at all of the other demographics, where are we with hiring women? Where are we with hiring LBGT? Um, Q plus, 
where are we with hiring Latinx um, folks? Um, so we have those kind of conversations. And so that's where, what the work has transitioned into. I occasionally do, you know, um, speaking engagements where I come in to a conference and, you know, it's, that's the thing. Um, but the majority of the work that I do is around anti-racism training. So what do you recommend for people when it comes to being an anti-racist and confronting things like microaggressions or bias? Absolutely. I tell people that it's uncomfortable for everyone. And so um, there's this meme, and I use it all the time in our trainings, that if Black students can experience racism, white students can understand why it exists, right? And so, and I, and oftentimes people get miffed by or dis, dis, um, um, they shut down because they think it's a black and white issue. It's not a black and white issue, but the spectrum goes from black to white, right? And so if we look at anti-racism from the, the lens of we want to be able to leverage the playing field for the most disenfranchised in community, we have to look at it from where are the inequities for the black communities, for the for black employees within your organization, for black people that you are serving who come in and our clients or customers of yours or black students. Because if you help that demographic, you're helping all demographics, right? Everyone will win. And I also believe I one of the, the messages that I'm very strong about and very intentional about is we live in a resource-rich country. And this country would have you to believe that we live in a deficit. There is enough for everyone. And so I want people, especially those who are in privileged demographics, to understand that no one's coming to take something from you. That this isn't about if you give something to this um, group of people, that that means that you're going to take something from me. And I know this to be the case because I grew up in an age of affirmative action. I'm 50. I'm old enough to have parents who were alive during the civil rights movement. I, I understand that this is the way that we we shape the narrative to, to divide our groups within our country. And so I'm saying to folks that for the sake of humanity, let's do things that help the most disenfranchised because it's not going to take anything away from, you know, me, the individual. I have a job. I have a job based on the fact that I've had a career um, that is stands on the educational background and the degrees that I have. No one can take that away from me. The likelihood of me being able to be sustained and and okay in in life is highly it's a high probability. But someone who doesn't have the opportunities that I've been given, we need to fight for those individuals to have. So when I vote, I vote for people who are more disenfranchised and dis you know um more vulnerable in community than I am. And that's the perspective that I help people realize that it's not about taking something away from you. We don't live in a um, deficit society. We are very resource rich. And the, one of the examples that I use, the city of Oakland, which is my hometown in California, um, has more abandoned homes than they do unhoused people. And so think about that. There are more abandoned homes than unhoused people. We can take those unhoused people and put them in homes because there's enough infrastructure. We don't need to build more, more homes. We don't need to raise the rents. We don't need to do more. It's enough. So I would venture to ask in every major city around this country, especially when dealing with issues like poverty and unhousedness, um, how many abandoned homes do you have in your, your area? That'll give you a barometer of, do I need to build more 
or can we do more for the people who are unhoused? And I take that approach in education. I take that approach when I'm addressing corporate America or nonprofit. It's this, we don't have, we're not living in a deficit. And so I would just ask people to step back. And also the, the third thing I ask people to do is get out of your comfort zone. It's okay to be, you know, that silent, um, uncomfortable moment because you feel like it's an attack on you. Let it be what it is. Racism didn't start last year. It didn't start with George Floyd. And so when we think about the roots of where it came from, understand that either two things are happening. You either benefit from what the founding fathers did or you suffer from what the founding fathers did. Regardless, it doesn't mean that you were the cause of. We just need to um, deal with directly um, the impact of. And now you... We're showing your passion when talking about, you know, the people needing homes, having the ability to, you know, having the abandoned homes. So what other things are you passionate about when it comes to activism? Oh, my goodness. So for the past um, seven years, I well, the, la- the last three years I haven't been, last two years I haven't been. But for the past seven years, I've been a chapter lead, lead with Black Lives Matter Sacramento. Um And so we have led lots of community protests, but also I think that there's this misnomer out there that um, folks who are associated with grassroots organizations like Black Lives Matter, like the Poor People's Campaign, like the La Raza's out there, um, that all they do is protest in the streets and make people uncomfortable. And that's just not the case. I have sat on many boards here in the state of California. We have written actual legislation. We have got it passed through our state, um, and and these are laws on the books now that we have written. So I, you know, I get this thing all the time. Folks in community, when I joined Black Lives Matter, was like, Sonia, you're too educated to be with those hooligans in the street. And I'd be like, are we kidding? So 90% of my chapter that I was in, uh, involved with, um, 90% had a minimum of a bachelor's degree. of us had a master's degree. 40% of us had PhDs. But that's just to say that there's this misnomer. There's this, um, you know, there's this, this thought about protest, this negative thought about protest, right? I am all about making people uncomfortable to stop and think about the lives that have been lost. And so while it seems like there's an attack on law enforcement in this country, the reality is, and I, and I use this statistic as well, um, the city of Chicago, for example, I want to say it was in um, 2018, um, of the officers that died in the line of duty, only two were shot in community. Um, they had a total of 12 that were killed while, in, uh, while working. So that means the remaining... 10, either it was a car accident or it was like natural causes like a heart attack or a stroke, right? The number of people that law enforcement killed, shot um, that same year, same department, was little less than 200. And so when people talk about Black Lives Matter or organizations that have protests in the streets and they're attacking law enforcement, um, they talk about it from a standpoint that there's an attack on police. The reality is 90% of the time, law enforcement doesn't stop and prevent crime. They come after the fact, they write reports, and then 60% of crimes go unsolved. 
And so my question is to people is, is this a good investment of taxpayer dollars? And so if we can avert some of those funds to community organizations that can address some of the social things that are going wrong in community, like poverty, like lack of community programs for youth, like job readiness, if we can address some of those issues, we also know that 70% of crime that's committed in this country are out of desperation. And so if as a mother, if my children were hungry for two days in a row, I'm going to go steal some food to feed my children. So that's a crime out of desperation, right? It's not that I want to be a person that is committing crime and steal food. It's that my children are hungry. And so I think that if we look at things from that perspective and not that we're attacking an organization that one, we know is completely broken. The system of policing is broken. And why are we continuing to invest in that system that's broken? I get asked the question all the time. um, Do you think that there are any good cops out there? As long as you work for a system that's broken, it's impossible for you to impact the system in a good way. And so my answer is no. And people are like, oh my God, Sonia, did you really say that? Yes, you're taking a good person and putting them into a system that's broken. And because the system is broken, you're asking them to do things and target certain communities in a way that represents the brokenness of the system. There's no way that you can be good. There's no way that good can come out of that. And so unless we address the way that we are policing, the way that law is designed and the way that it impacts community, um, it'll always be broken. And that's just not with law enforcement. That's with healthcare. That's with housing. That's with employment. And so we really have to look at those things. And so those are other movements that I'm very um, passionate about. I'm also, you know, recently passionate about um, um, climate and and the impact of climate on our country. Um, We know that, especially in urban settings, that um, climate and Um, just general things that we can't control like water. Flint, Michigan, for example, we can't control those things. And so how is it impacting communities of color? Um, It's very highly like now on the top of my radar. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you have helped write some legislation. Can you talk a little bit about that process and what it was like to get things actually on the books? The longest process ever. (laughs) (laughs) We live in a country that runs by snails. (laughs) Like it is the longest. It's so frustrating. Um, Luckily for us, we had two senior representatives in the state of California legislature and senior in a sense that they had been around for a long time. And so they knew the ins and outs and the workings of who they needed to get support from. And so um, Shirley Weber and, um, Kevin McCarty were very much intentional about we need to craft a bill. And we crafted two bills um, back in. We started in 2015. Both of them were passed into law in 2018. So it was a three-year process. It's very frustrating. It goes through several iterations, right? So we had we crafted it. We sat down. We said, we want all these things. We brought in all these organizations that do grassroots work. And we said, we want to do this. At the end of the day, we wanted um, law enforcement agencies to report when an officer has a complaint on their record. We wanted it to be public record. And then we wanted to address use of force. 
because we felt like in, in certain communities that the use of force was higher and we want non-lethal force to be used because we know that other countries are not experiencing the same thing. And so we want to be able to have actual humanity be, you know, exhibited in our community. And so in the first iteration of both of those um, laws, law enforcement agencies, um, law enforcement unions, um, all of these organizations came out of the woodwork and was like, you can't do this. And we need to be able, in a split decision, we have to be able to make, you're right. We just had a um, law case of an officer who grabbed her gun instead of her taser. When she was saying taser, there is just no way that we can, uh, anyone could believe that you're grabbing your gun and you thought it was your taser. I, I, I find that extremely hard to believe. Now, mind you, I've, you know, been through arms training and have gone to, you know, um, the gun range. So I know the heaviness of, I also have a taser and it is so light. There's no way that if I put one in one hand, the other hand would feel the impact and the weight. There's no way that a veteran officer with 26 years of experience can mistakenly grab her gun thinking it was a taser. So use of force was one of those things. And so, like I said, it took a three-year process, several iterations, several pushback from people in law enforcement and organizations who put a lot of dollars behind the status quo of things. And so I'm glad to say that it eventually passed. Um, It unfortunately was after the uh, one major case here in California, the Stefan Clark murder here in Sacramento. and it, the one um, law about use of force is now called, is nicknamed the Stefan Clark Law. And so I'm very proud that we were able to, one, sit in the rooms with lawmakers, have intelligent conversations about what the needs of community are, and then craft laws to reflect what the needs of the community. And are these laws in uh, Sacramento or like in the entire state of California? The entire state of California. So every law enforcement agency in the state of California now has to report to what their use use of force is, as well as when officers have complaints or when there is an officer-involved shooting. Those things are public record. We no longer have to, um, um, those, those things are just not secret anymore. And, you know, we want accountability and transparency. Right, exactly. Now, switching topics, uh, not a little bit, a good bit. Uh, you've mentioned a couple times your family. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of kids. Do you want to talk talk about them? They are like the loves of my life. And I, I really and truly believe that I went into education and I do this work um, for equity for them. So if I shared the example that, you know, the spectrum, um, right? So at the top of the spectrum, um, fortunately and unfortunately, is we live in a country that unfortunately is race-based. And so we want to fix those things. And so being the mother of six beautiful black boys, they range in age from 27 to to nine now. He just turned nine in December. Um, has offered me an opportunity to look at equity from a different lens. Like what are the needs that each of them have separately, right? And if I can help any organization see and not erase and hear any of my boys, then they would be doing a a service and a justice for their entire organization. 
um, I, my family and I, my husband and I, um, have had to go through, um, the carceral system with one of our boys. Um, we know that having children who happen to be black boys, um, there's a higher probability of them having touches with law enforcement. Um, and so it's a thing, it's a worry, you know, having those conversations with your children about, you can't do this and, and I need you to, you know, shape shift to a certain degree. And, and we call it in our community, um, um, code switching. Um, it's when you are in certain company, you might have to, you know, stand up straight and be more, uh, uh, aggressive about paying attention to your surrounding words, which when you're with people who you are familiar with, you can relax a little bit. And so they are the loves of my life. They are all different. They all have different needs. Um, and I've tried to parent them that accepts, you know, that to meet their needs, just like I, every organization that I work with, I want to tailor things to meet their needs. Um, it is a joy. We have wonderful, loud, boisterous, good times when we're all together. The holidays are a blast. Um, we have one that's turning 21 this month and we will rent a cabin in the snow and get us all together and just have a, you know, a good time. So that's just, you know, indicative of who we are as a family. Mm -hmm. And are they, whether your children or your husband, um, also passionate about equity like you are? You know, it's so funny because I've, I'm, I've made my children to a certain degree um, participate in the business. So I do a, a teach-in, for example, where we um, work with students all over the country. It's virtual. Um, when the school shut down, we were able to set up a platform on Zoom, invite kids in from all over the country. And my my first students were my student, my, my babies who were still in school because I noticed that the schools were horrible when they first shut down. They had no work to do. And I was like, okay, let me put my teacher hat back on, right? And so I created this program. They hated it in the beginning. They were like, oh my gosh, mom, I don't want you to be my teacher. But now that we do the teaching, they are now my my lead teachers. They can they know the run of program. And so they can start the class, right? If I were not available, they would not only be able to start the class, they, they know what I would pick based on the, whatever content we're talking about that day. They know how to do research, um, they are now leaders where they feel comfortable speaking in front of groups. They can mentor the other students that are involved. So my younger kids are my brand warriors. So like they're ambassadors for my company. Um, my college boy is, is my, one of my blog writers. My high school, um, son is a blog writer. Um, I have four bonus children by marriage. Um, my oldest bonus child, she is, um, behind the scenes and does a lot of my administrative work. She's a paid employee. My mother is a paid employee of my business. Um, so yeah, it's not only inter and multi-generational. Um, it is also a woman-led country company, which I, I just, I, I always am looking for women to, to lift, you know, the, the plight of women. Um, and so, yeah, they, I forced them Long story short, Sarah, I forced them to be a part of this this business. I could remember during the teaching when quarantine, we were in quarantine and everything was shut down. We had this major interview um, from one of the local TV um, stations, and I had my husband was our camera guy. 
because we needed someone to document. So yes, I forced them into these things. You know, when I go out to certain speaking engagements and it's with a particular crowd that I don't necessarily feel safe. Um, I ha- a couple of my boys are my security and legitimately we've had to unfortunately use them as security in, the, in, in those circumstances. But yeah, they are definitely, if they don't get down with equity, you know, mom can't write you a check for college and school and, and the things that you want in life. So um, they are definitely maybe not as passionate, but they are part of this equation. <laughs> now, what is it that you hope for the business in the future? So that's a good question because my my business mentor and I have been talking about my exit strategy, right? I for so long have said to myself, I'll never retire. I could do this forever. And I'm at a place now. So I have a I have the business, the LLC, um, that pays the bills, and then we have the nonprofit. I would love to, at some point, be able to train some folks to do the facilitation in for me and then me sit back and just be the leader of, of the company um, and 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 potentially retire and then give my energy to the nonprofit with raising money for the nonprofit, which is um, we do three things with that nonprofit. We do the teaching um, where it's free educational support. Um, we are teaching things that are typically not taught in the school system. So even though there's this hot button and topic around critical race theory and ethnic studies today, those things are left out of the history book. So we teach the black lived experience, the the Latinx experience, the LBGTQ experience, the indigenous experience. We teach those things in our teaching. Um, And so I would love to raise funds, be able to just spend my time raising funds for that program and building it up more. Um, another part of my nonprofit is we are community advocates. And so when there is an issue of um, educational inequity or community inequity from law enforcement or housing, we take those complaints and we walk through that complaint process with people in community. As just like, a, you know, people need emotional and moral support as they're going through these processes. And we don't want people to, to be discouraged through the process because they can be long and drawn out. And oftentimes people don't go through the fullness of those processes because they are so long and drawn out and then they give up and then change doesn't happen. And so we help people walk through those processes. And then the third thing is that we work, we want to make sure that we're lifting the plight of women and children across the country. And so wherever we can lean in, if it's a matter of a climate issue or a matter of a resource issue in a commun- uh, our community, um, we are working in to meet those needs as well. So I love to one day, and we have a 10-year plan with a scribe for me to step away a little bit so that I can devote more time to um, the nonprofit Edify Humanity. Of course. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure I have any more specific questions for you. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners about you, yourself, the good work uh, in equity and everything you're doing? Well, I am a recent, and I'm so excited about it, published author. And so my book officially hits the market on my birthday this year. We are having a huge book launch um, celebration and party next month. And it is one of those things that we know will be a game changer for the work that we do because we can start the conversation off with 
this story. And so this book is about seven-year-old Sonia um, who made a decision in the second grade to not stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. And I know sometimes people are like, oh my gosh, that's so un-American or that, why would you do that? At seven years old, I had seen enough in my community, in the Bay Area, that I felt like there wasn't liberty and justice for all. And so I said, if that one line of the Pledge of Allegiance felt like it was not true, then the entire Pledge of Allegiance couldn't be true. And so I got into a lot of trouble for not saying the Pledge of Allegiance. (laughs) Um, And ultimately, the teacher who tried to punish me um, ended up retiring. And so that's what this book is about, is about courage. It is about why there are two sets of rules for students um, and, and how that transfers into society. Um, It's a book about voice and agency for young people. Oftentimes we live in this world where we tell kids, you don't know anything. Let adults talk. Let adults handle this, right? Um, There's that old adage that says children should be seen and unheard. Well, my daughter is a social worker. Her organization that she works for, their slogan is children should be seen and heard. And so... We are trying to lift that in this book and make sure that if there is an opportunity for us to have different conversations with students, with our children, as parents, um, how can we do that in a more diplomatic way without silencing the voices of children? I'm a firm believer that if we do things right for children, they won't have to heal from the traumas um, that they experienced in their childhood as adults. They can go into their adulthood thriving and surviving. And is this book um, like a children's book or a middle grade or an adult book? I would say middle grade to adult. Um, It is really a tool for adults to be able to have those conversations with children and to encourage them to use their voice for the good and be courageous in their voices. Great. Yeah. Now, at the end of every episode, I do ask all of my guests a random question. Okay. So my question for you, because we, it'll be cut out of the final episode, but we did get momentarily interrupted by a fire alarm in your house because of someone cooking. Right. So my question for you is, what is the weirdest food combination you enjoy? Ooh. Ooh. Okay. So I love greens. And and greens is a vegetable. You boil them up. I love greens. I can eat greens and a tuna sandwich and dip it in the juice. <laughs> this is so weird. But I've actually done that. So my kids are always asking me to make tuna patty melts, right? And during the epi- the the shutdown, we we I had a lunch menu, and once a week they were so excited when I made these tuna melts. And so one day, and this was really random, but one day we had some leftover greens. I was like, I'm having greens for lunch. And I made an extra sandwich because I was just rushing. And I said, let me have half of this sandwich. And I dipped it into the, it was so delightful. It was the weirdest thing, but it was so delightful. And so, yes, I sometimes consider myself a weird alien. And that would be proof that I am.
All right, that brings this episode to a close. I will be leaving the website for Sonia's business, ascribesuccess.com, in the description, along with links to all of her socials. And of course, if you would like more information about this podcast, our website is in the description as well. Brings you to all past episodes, um, the transcripts of episodes, all of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And of course, if you would like to support the podcast monetarily or be a guest on the show, that information is in the description as well. So I always love to hear from new people. So thank you so much, Sonia, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye.